Good afternoon and welcome to the CEU lectures. I'm John Shattuck, President and Rector of Central European University. It's my great privilege to introduce this special series of five lectures by George Soros held here in Budapest at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences under the auspices of Central European University. In these lectures, George Soros will draw upon a lifetime of practical and philosophical reflection and share his latest thinking on economics and politics. Today, Mr. Soros will present the fundamentals of his philosophical theory. Today's lecture will include students from the London School of Economics, in addition to the invited guests and Central European University students who are here at the Academy. Our moderator today is the distinguished philosopher Colin McGinn, renowned for his work in the philosophy of mind. I'm now delighted to present George Soros, who truly needs no introduction. here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever? Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, public Access, Access America. America. In the course of, of my life, I've developed a conceptual framework which has helped me both in make money, making money as a hedge fund manager and in spending it as a policy-oriented philanthropist. But the framework itself is not about money. It's about the relationship between thinking and reality, a subject that is extensively studied by philosophers from early on. <clears throat> I started developing my philosophy as a student at the London School of Economics in the late 1950s. I took my final exams one year early, 
and I had a year to fill before I was qualified to receive my degree. I could choose my own tutor, and I chose Karl Popper, who, uh, whose uh, book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, had made a profound impression on me. In his books, Popper argued that the uh, empirical truth can't be known with absolute certainty. Even scientific laws can't be verified beyond the shadow of a doubt. They can only be falsified by testing. One failed test is enough to, to falsify, but no amount of confirming instances is sufficient to verify. Scientific laws are hypothetical in character, and their truth remains subject to testing. Ideologies which claim to be in possession of the ultimate truth are making a false claim. Therefore, they can be imposed on society only by force. This applies to communism, fascism, and national socialism alike. All these ideologies lead to re repression. Popper proposed a more attractive form of social organization, a society, an open society in which people are free to hold divergent opinions and the rule of law allows people with different views and different interests to live together in peace. Having lived through both Nazi and communist occupation here in Hungary, I found the idea of an open society immensely attractive. While I was reading Popper, I was also studying economic theory, and I was struck by the contradiction between Popper's emphasis on imperfect understanding and the theory of perfect competition in economics, which postulated perfect knowledge. This led me to start questioning the assumptions of economic theory. These were the two major the theoretical inspirations of my philosophy. It's also deeply rooted in my personal history. The formative experience of my life was the German occupation of Hungary in 1944. I was not yet 14 years old at the time. Coming from a reasonably well-to-do middle-class background, suddenly confronted with the prospect of being deported and killed just because I was Jewish. Fortunately, my father was well prepared for this far from equilibrium experience. He had lived through the Russian Revolution, and that was the formative experience of his life. Until then, he had been an ambitious young man. When the First World War broke out, he volunteered to serve in the Austro-Hungarian army. He was captured by the Russians and taken as a prisoner of war to Siberia. Being ambitious, he became the editor of a newspaper produced by the prisoners. It was handwritten and displayed on a plank, and it was called the plank. This made him so popular that he was elected the prisoner's representative. Then some soldiers escaped from a neighboring camp, and their prisoner's representative was shot in retaliation. My father, instead of waiting for the same thing to happen in his camp, organized a breakout. His plan was to build a raft and sail down to the ocean. 
but his knowledge of geography was somewhat deficient. He didn't realize that all the rivers uh, in Siberia flow into the Arctic. They drifted for several weeks before they, they realized that they were heading for the Arctic, and it took them several more months to make their way back to civilization across the taiga. In the meantime, the Russian Revolution broke out, and they became caught up in it. Only after a variety of adventures did my father manage to find his way back to Hungary. Had he remained in the camp, he would have arrived home much sooner. <clears throat> my father came home a changed man. His experiences during the Russian Revolution profoundly, profoundly affected him. He lost his ambition and wanted nothing more from life than to enjoy it. He imparted to his children values that were very different from those of the milieu in which we lived. He had no desire to amass wealth or become socially prominent. On the contrary, he worked only as much as was necessary to make ends meet. I remember being sent to his main client to borrow some money before we went on a skiing holiday. My father was grouchy for months afterwards because he had to work to pay it back. <clears throat> Although we were reasonably prosperous, we were not the typical bourgeois family, and we were proud of being different. In 1944, when the Germans occupied Hungary, my father immediately realized that these were not normal times and the normal rules didn't apply. He arranged false identities for his family and a number, number of other people. Those who could, paid. Uh, uh, others, he helped for free. Most of them survived. That was his finest hour. Living with false identity turned out to be an exhilarating experience for me too. We were in mortal danger. People perished all around us, but we managed not only to survive, but to help other people. We were on the side of the angels, and we triumphed against overwhelming odds. This made me feel very special. It was high adventure. I had a reliable guide in my father and came through unscathed. What more could a 14-year-old ask for? After the euphoric experience of escaping the Nazis, life in Hungary started to lose its luster during the Soviet occupation. I was looking for new challenges, and with the help of my father, I found my way out of Hungary. When I was 17, I became a student in London. In my studies, my primary interest was to gain a better understanding of the strange world into which I had been born. But I have to confess, I, I also harbored uh, some fantasies of, become, of becoming an important philosopher. I believed that I had gained insights that set me apart from other people. Living in London was a, bit, was a big letdown. I was without money, alone, 
and people were not interested in what I had to say. But I didn't abandon my philosophical ambitions, even when circumstances forced me to make a living in more mundane pursuits. After completing my studies, I had a number of false starts. Finally, I ended up as an arbitrage trader in New York. But in my free time, I continued to work on my philosophy. That's how I came to write my first major essay, entitled The Burden of Consciousness. It was an attempt to model a pauper's framework of open and closed societies. It linked organic society with a traditional mode of thinking, closed society with a dogmatic mode, and, uh, and open society with a critical mode. What I could not properly resolve was the nature of the relationship between the mode of thinking and the actual state of affairs. That problem continued to preoccupy me, and that's how I came to develop the concept of reflexivity, a concept I shall explore in greater detail a little later. It so happened that the concept of reflexivity provided me with a new way of looking at financial markets, a better way than the prevailing theory. This gave me an edge, first as a securities analyst and then as a hedge fund manager. I felt as if I were in possession of a major discovery that would enable me to fulfill my fantasy of becoming an important philosopher. At a certain moment, when my business career ran into a roadblock, I shifted gears and devoted all my energies to developing my theory. But I treasured my discovery so much that I couldn't part with it. I felt that the concept of reflexivity needed to be explored in great depth. As I delved deeper and deeper into the subject, I got lost in the intricacies of my own constructions. One morning, I couldn't understand what I had written the night before. At that point, I decided to abandon my philosophical explorations and to focus on making money. Public Access America is on Instagram, sharing sneak peeks, episode art, snippets of the stories, and more. Search Big Brain Pod and follow, like, and comment on Instagram. It was only many years later, after a successful run as a hedge fund manager, that I returned to my philosophy. I published my first, uh, first uh, essay, uh, the, the, the Alchemy of Finance, in 1987. In that book, I tried to explain the philosophical underpinnings of my approach to financial markets. The book attracted a certain amount of attention. It has been read by, mo by most people in the hedge fund industry, and it is taught in business schools. But the philosophical arguments didn't make much of an impression. They were largely uh, dismissed as the conceit of a man who has been successful in business and fancied himself as a philosopher. I myself came to doubt whether I was in possession of a major new insight. 
After all, I was dealing with a subject that has been explored by philosophers since time immemorial. What grounds did I have for thinking that I had made a new discovery, especially as nobody else seems to think so? Undoubtedly, the conceptual framework was useful to me personally, but it didn't seem to be uh, equally uh, considered equally valuable by others. I had to accept that judgment. I didn't give up my philosophical interests, but I came to regard them as a personal predilection. I continued to be guided by my conceptual framework, both in my business and in my philanthropic activities, which came to assume an increasingly important role in my life. And each time I wrote a book, I faithfully recited my arguments. This helped me to develop my conceptual framework, but I con con uh, continued to consider myself a failed philosopher. Once I even gave a lecture with the, with the title, A Failed Philosopher Tried Tries Again. All this has changed as a result of the financial crisis of 2008. My conceptual framework enabled me both to anticipate the crisis and to deal with it when it finally struck. It has also enabled me to explain and predict events better than most others. This has changed my own evaluation and that of many others. My philosophy is no longer a personal matter. It deserves to be taken seriously as a possible contribution to our understanding of reality. And that is what has prompted me to give this series of lectures. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. Facebook. 
Republic Access America. History in the making. Making. History in the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day.